Good morning, Highland. For the season of Lent this year, we've decided as a congregation to participate in outward acts of grace. We believe the Holy Spirit is at work in our community, and it empowers us to do the good work of the gospel. Practically speaking, this looks like each of us choosing a particular virtue to center on for the duration of the Lenten season. I chose mercy, and truthfully, I chose it because it was the only one with which I didn't have a clear picture for how it looked like in my life and in my own relationships. But all I could hear over and over again in my head were Jesus' words. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I decided to dedicate this Lenten season to figuring out what he meant by that. And a couple weeks ago, a good mentor and friend of mine gifted me a small ceramic finger labyrinth to use for centering myself in prayer and meditation. It's not a maze. There are no dead ends. The journey inward is the same journey outward. And as I descended to the center with my mind on mercy, I first found the mercy that has been gifted to me, the mercy that renews every day. And it was at the center that I questioned how long I've gone without carrying that close with me. So on my way out of the labyrinth, I took it with me. And while leaving, I thought about how maybe Jesus desires for me to dwell more on his mercy than on the areas of my life that necessitated his sacrifice for me. Maybe his mercy is more powerful to heal those areas than my own self-criticism. And the more I have addressed those self-deprecating thoughts, the more I have noticed when others do it to themselves. And so the virtue of mercy this Lenten season has looked like gently guiding others out of self-deprecating comments by using the words of life that I imagine Jesus would use with us. You may notice the stations against the wall, and if you haven't already, we encourage you to go to those tables after the service and choose one of the seven virtues for yourself. We believe that doing this places us in a posture to do the work of the kingdom. Now please stand for the reading of the word. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, It is good for us to be here. Uh, If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. 
It is good to see you here, uh, if you're with us in the room or if you're with us online. It's good to have you with us. My name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And I, I loved what Abigail said about how she was going to concretize the truth of mercy, not only in her own heart, but in the hearts of others, that through her would pour a gift from God. That was a beautiful moment. And I, I encourage you with what she said and also just pick a virtue. Find out how it plays out in your life. That was a perfect example of what this should look like. We're in this series in Lent called Reflect. And, and we're asking the question, how do we look like Jesus? When you look in the mirror, how much do you look like Jesus? How much do you see Jesus gazing back at you? And so we're going to take this meandering path through the life of Jesus as we travel to resurrection. We're going through Lent together to get to Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to travel with Jesus, and I'm glad you're with us on the journey. Last week, we asked the question, how do we reflect the kingdom? And we looked at the story of, of Jesus testing in the wilderness. He goes out to be tested by the Satan. And the question that we were left to ask is, how do we order the passions of our hearts to, direct, to reflect Jesus' work? Because it's really easy to say yes to a lot of ignoble things and not to say yes to God. It's easy to say yes to good, and we miss saying yes to great. And this week, literally in this story, it is Jesus who is reflecting. And I have so many questions about this text. I'm not sure what transfigured means. I don't know exactly what transfigured looks like. I don't know what Jesus looked like in the same way that I, I'm not sure what the sun looks like. Or cars at night when they're traveling right at you with those super bright lights, the, you know, those Xeon beams. I can't tell you what those cars look like because I can't see them. The text tells us that Jesus' face glowed and his clothes were radiating a brightness. And that's the kind of light that makes you you turn away to put up a hand to shield your eyes. The only way you can kind of observe it is if you kind of glance from the periphery of your vision to see. We're in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1 today, if you want to follow along with your Bible. But what I realized this week as, as, we, were getting, as we were preparing for Sunday is that this text is difficult to preach. I mean, Matthew tells us how to frame the whole thing. In verse 9, he tells us that what happened was a, a vision. But this is unique in the case of most vision, at least the way we think of it, because it was shared by three people. Well, four really, but Peter, James, and John. This text is difficult to preach because this text is difficult to understand. I've been working through a practice. I've been, I've been learning a new way to pray. It's called the Ignatian Contemplative Prayer. It's, it's a prayer that was formed in kind of the medieval era and has, has traveled through spiritual disciplines and, and spiritual thought. And, and basically what you do with Ignatian contemplative prayer is you walk through a text imagining it as it flows out of it. You read it so you're familiar with it, and then you allow yourself to go through it using your imagination of what it was like to be in that place, to be in that presence. And you walk through the text with excruciating slowness. It's not a prayer where you come to tell God what you want or praise God for what God is. It's a time of prayer just to be in the presence of God. It's communion. And I had a chance to experience this with Father Pepe. He was a Jesuit priest who had, by the way, 
three master's degrees, and he called the master of divinity the starter one. And we were doing this story of where Jesus calms the storm. And, and, and Father Pepe led us through that story with excruciating slowness. I mean, I was out in the boat. Jesus had already calmed the storm. Father Pepe was still on the beach feeling the sand with his toes and smelling the salt air. That's how slow you had to work through the story. And I've been experiencing this. I've been practicing this form of prayer ever since. And so I tried it with this text. But in my Ignatian contemplative journey, I kept running against a problem that every time I went to look at the story, to experience the story, to stand shoulder to shoulder with Peter and James and John to see what's happening, I kept, I kept seeing fog. Now, if I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up, I, I spent a while in California in the, in the kind of the Bay Area. And if you live in the Bay Area, one of the things that happens to you all the time is that friends, like, want to use your place as, as vacation, right? Uh, they want to do that because Airbnbs in San Francisco are ridiculously expensive. And so we just had kind of a, a, a place in our house where friends could come and stay and, and go see the sites and everything. And we became pretty good, like, tour guides for them. And we'd ask a few questions about what do they want to see in San Francisco and what do they want to eat there and what are some of the things you want to experience. And inevitably, what would come out, whether they said it or not, inevitably, whatever guest that was ever with us, what they wanted was some sort of picture with them in the front and the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. Like, that's just, that's kind of what you need to get to prove that you were there. And in San Francisco, there's only two real good places to do that. You have to know where these places are. The problem, though, is the weather. Is that San Francisco, any day of the week, can have a total marine fog that just rolls in and you can't see anything. I mean, we would be traveling up 280 to get to the city, and it's a beautiful trip with these gorgeous hills, and then you come over the, the vista where you, where you can see downtown, and some days, it didn't matter if it was morning, night, middle of the day, you would see nothing but white. And if it was one of those foggy days, sometimes it would clear and sometimes it wouldn't, you knew the Golden Gate Bridge was there, you just couldn't tell because you couldn't see it. In fact, the whole city unfolded like a half block at a time because that's as far as you could go. And there was kind of a really cool mystery that happened on those really foggy days, because you didn't discover something until you were right up against it. It was this special moment, and that's, that's what happened to me this week as I was doing contemplative prayer around this story. There was, there was fog. In fact, in the story, there's fog. Peter and James and John, they, they can kind of see what's going on, but they can't. They can tell who those people are, but they can't hear what they're saying. At least they don't tell us what they're saying to one another. And this, this moment, this transfiguration, it captured this intimate moment between Jesus and God, a moment between God and God where God communes with Jesus, where God communes with God, and some sort of meaning is passed, but we, alongside Peter, we can't see or hear everything, and so we don't understand and it's clear in the story that Peter doesn't understand it either, but he feels like this is a really big deal. So much so that he says, we need to build some tents, guys. I mean, and maybe this is a throwback to the festival of booths. And, and what, what Peter has in his mind is when he was a kid making those little tents where they remembered the cloud and the fire that guided Israel through the wilderness. 
Maybe it's a way to mark the ground, like this ground is particularly holy ground, like Jacob in the waste, realizing after he wrestled with God that some ladders have footprints that aren't human on them. Maybe it's just this moment, it's so utterly life-transforming that Peter knows in an instant that everything is about to change, that this moment is going to be a new festival for Israel. This is the moment where he's going to tell his kids about, and this is the moment that he's going to tell his grandkids about, and this is the story that's going to be passed down. It is clear that Peter doesn't understand, but that's okay. Because that's how visions work. This text is confusing because it's, it's so rich with imagery. This text gives you every handheld and nook and cranny that you can crawl around on it to see what it's like. But some of those handhelds have sharp edges and some of them are difficult to grasp. They go up the mountain like Moses and they hear the same voice that Jesus hears at his baptism saying the exact same thing except this coda is added to it. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah are there but they've never met them before. But they know it is them the same way that I know who the people are in my dreams just because it's easy to tell whom I've never met. They simply know. And then on the way down, they're bound to secrecy until after the resurrection. There's all of these handhelds, but what do we do with them? Those seeking a vision will spend countless hours and energy to hear from God. And this is true in Scripture. Hannah prays in the temple, so much so that the priest there thinks she's been drinking too much. Prophets wander in the desert to hear a word from God. Paul has two visions, which is kind of unique. One that strikes him blind and turns him around, and another that he can only talk about in the third person. He can't even tell the story as if he was there. And, and in 2 Corinthians, he says, I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. What we do know from Scripture and from the story of the church is that pilgrims will travel thousands of miles to hear the voice of God. People will fast and pray and fast and pray and fast and pray because they want to hear a word from God. And they want to hear a word from God because life is confusing and it's difficult to bear and because suffering seems cruel when without clear purpose. They want to hear a word from God because the stakes of the choices seem impossibly high and we don't know what to do. This text is confusing because encounters with God are confusing. And if you're so lucky to hear something from God, it may not even settle anything. Those in Scripture are left trembling and wondering and afraid. Mother Teresa of Calcutta she hears a call that changes her life completely, and, and, and afterwards she builds the, this place where she can take care of the poorest and the poor and those that are dying of leprosy on the streets. And years after she died, her, her memoir, her, her diary is published, and we learn that she experienced long years of questioning whether or not she was doing what God had asked her. 
Where is my faith, she writes. Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Sid Burgess notes that the saint whose name she took when she became a nun, St. Therese of France, called her own doubt a night of nothingness. And the better-known 16th-century mystic, St. John of the Cross, coined the term the dark night of the soul. And St. John believed this to be a critical stage in the maturing of some of the world's most inspired spiritual masters. That if you want to get to a place where you hear God, sometimes you have to go through that quiet, still valley. And even if you do have a vision, you may spend the rest of your life longing to hear just one more word. And now I realize, speaking about vision to a a church of Christ, that those of us that are coming from like this hyper-rational, common-sense roots of the Stone-Campbell movement, the idea of a vision is off-putting at best and a little bit unfair. Because I have been in many theological discussions where my careful reasoning has been trumped by another's direct revelation. It's like bringing a pool pool cue into the batter's box. It's simply not fair. We don't have the same equipment here. It's like if you grew up Church of Christ, how you feel about dancing. My most terrible fine moments in in the story of my adult life are those moments at a wedding when the music begins to play and everybody just kind of looks around to see what's going to happen, right? Sometimes I get the preacher card that allows me like just like a, you know, get out of jail free. I'm the preacher. I just did the wedding. I I shouldn't be expected to dance. But other times there are moments where that is what I'm supposed to do. And I grew up in a family and in a movement where those muscles were never trained. Those parts of my body never worked the way that they were supposed to. And so at best, I'm up here like this, you know, like a little snap. Here we go. This isn't what I want. This isn't what I want to be. I want to be like going to town, you know, like working it out. But I can't because I look ridiculous. I play the fool and I can't help it. Right? You've been there. You grew up Church of Christ. My mom barely let me go to prom. And we, we haven't used those muscles. If you grew up in that hyper-rational movement, you, you, don't know what, you don't know the landscape. You don't know the steps. You don't know how to be coordinated. You don't know how to hear from God. And, it, and, and part of that is because of the way we approach Scripture and the way we approach life. But here's the truth. It took me a long time to accept that part of the Imago Dei, part of what makes you the image bearer of God, are your emotions and your imagination. In fact, the thing that might make you closest and unique in the entire universe to God is the fact that you can dream up things that do not yet exist. And then God has given you the talent to create them. This is what artists, poets, musicians, writers, and thinkers can do. We just, those muscles may just be atrophied for us. And so it makes me doubt and wonder those who hear from God like this all the time. What makes them special? What makes them so fortunate? But if I'm honest, the deeper end of that question is why not me? 
Why doesn't God speak to me? Why does it feel like prayers sometimes reach heaven and come back down as sharp knives? And I wrestled with this, and I wondered this question until until it happened to me. And that's not a story that I can share here. That moment for me was too holy for sermon fodder. And so I think I know why Matthew chooses not to share the words that Jesus spoke to God and God spoke to his son. I think the only time that you can tell those stories is when the campfire is burned to ember, when the night is quiet, when trusted friends bear their hearts to one another. But those who have had these experiences will tell you the same cluster of things. They'll they'll talk about the same constellation. But the visions that they had were incredibly short and they were often vague. And when they passed, the, the feeling that they remember the most was lingering comfort. That the experience itself, it was good for the soul. And the last thing I hear every time is... I wish I could have stayed there in that moment a little bit longer. I wish I could have lingered. And maybe that's what Peter wants. Peter wants to stay. He wants to build some sort of edifice that can capture that moment so that he can come back to it because the work of his life and the work of his day often feels so far from God and the questions that he has. He wants that place where he can come back to that moment again, but he can't. And we can't. This text ends where every vision from God ends. Peter, James, and John traveling back down the mountain, following Jesus. You can't stay on the mountain. The work that God has called us to is not on the mountain but it is following Jesus down the mountain to do what God has asked us to do. Another way to say that is visions begin and end in discipleship. They begin and end meditating on the face and life of Jesus. Is this who I am? Is this who God called me to be? Is this the work that I'm supposed to do today? It's, you're never going to get the full picture. Our lives are going to be like walking through those foggy San Francisco roads. And you're not going to get the, the full view of the bridge most days. Most days you're going to get a half block or maybe a full block. And the prompting in you to do the next right may we have the courage to do the next right thing. Will you please stand for our benediction?
Our prayer team is going to be available for you. They're going to come forward now. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk with you. If it's something that requires more than just a conversation at the end of this service, our elders would love to have a cup of, cup of coffee with you, take you out, and uh, as you bear souls with one another. But Highland Church, know this. Even the most awkward and uncoordinated efforts where you stumble toward Jesus will be rewarded by God. Even the most halting and cowardly step to move toward God, to seek God's face, will be answered. God is faithful. And so this week, may you be filled with God's presence. May you find the Spirit in unexpected places. May you go in peace.